Job chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that as we dig into it, that uh, you would be glorified, your people would be built up in your most holy faith, and we would learn how to worship even in our responses to your scriptures. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for Resurrection Sunday, I thought I would preach on one of the earliest testimonies to a belief in the resurrection, and I'm doing this for four reasons. And the first is that this really is a fabulous passage that you need to be aware of. Uh, in fact, uh, Gary said, you know, at the end of the service, we really probably ought to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Make the same testimony of faith that, that uh, Job did, and we, we probably will. And then second, this is a great passage for embarrassing liberals. If you love embarrassing people, here is a, a scripture you need to have in your arsenal because uh, the, the liberals, they say, there is no way that anybody could have believed in the resurrection prior to the Babylonian exile of the Jews, and then the Jews learned it from the Zoroastrians. You know, pagans never learn anything from Christians. It's always vice versa. And um, uh, so... Uh, here we have a clear text that is embarrassing to them. There's others in the Old Testament as well, but this is as clear as could be. And by the way, speaking of embarrassing people, this is a fabulous text to bring up to the full preterist Gnostics. Uh, they cannot handle this verse, and we'll see why a little bit later on. So, second reason, great passage for embarrassing heretics. Third reason that I like this passage is it shows God's care for his creation. Not only does God end the book by speaking about healing Job's body, which shows that he did really care about Job's body, but it speaks of the resurrection of Job's body. And it speaks of God blessing Job in many, many material ways. And so Resurrection Sunday points to the holistic perspective that the scripture gives on redemption. Unlike the pagan Greeks' view of salvation, for the Hebrews, uh, redemption does not mean escape from planet earth or escape from our bodies. It meant redemption of planet earth and redemption of our bodies. And so the resurrection that happened in 30 AD was a first fruits. It was a down payment a foretaste, if you will, of the full-orbed redemption that Jesus had planned. And so it's a fabulous passage for that reason. The fourth reason to preach on this is that it is the earliest clear reference to the resurrection of Christ 4,000 years ago. Now, there's a hint at this all the way back to Adam in Genesis 3.15, and uh, we'll look at that a little bit later on, but it's very, very explicit here. So 6,000 years ago, yes, there's a hint, but 4,000 years ago, an incredible testimony, 
And I want to show that this is not simply a New Testament concept. And I love the first two words. Job says, I know. There is something that Job is confident about, and the Hebrew is actually much stronger than the English. There is an emphatic placement of the eye, which has led uh, one commentator to translate it uh, this way. I have a firm and full persuasion. There's no question in Job's mind. And I believe that the reason that there was no question in Job's mind is that God had given him inspired, infallible revelation about this uh, long before the time of Moses. Hebrews chapter 1 says, before we ever had the, the canon of our scriptures pulled together, there were many ways in which God revealed his word to people in the Old Testament. So when you see these Reformed people who talk about biblical theology as if the only thing that Abraham knew is the tiny little bit that was there, and the only thing Enoch knew is just a fragment of knowledge, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. It's not just what you have recorded in Genesis. God revealed everything they needed for life and godliness, and it talks about Abraham obeying the laws and the precepts and the judgments, same word that's used for uh, the, 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 the law code that God gave uh, to, 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 to Moses. And so he has a, a confidence in Jesus the Messiah. Now, he didn't know that the name of the Messiah would be Jesus, but there are six things about this Messiah he is absolutely sure about, and these six things have given uh, hope and encouragement to God's people all down through the years. In the Hebrew, the first thing that Job says he knows is that this Messiah would be a kinsman redeemer. Uh, the word redeemer in the Hebrew is goel, which you will see is gaal in some places, depending on the context, same exact word. And the word is translated sometimes as kinsman redeemer, sometimes as avenger of blood. Uh, but it referred to the same person. It was a person who was uh, a relative, usually the head of some clan, who was very powerful, uh, wealthy enough to get you out of debt. If you were a slave, he could buy your freedom. He was able to protect you. He was able to avenge your blood. If you were a widow, he could care for you. In the book of Ruth, Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. Same word. Uh, he bought back the land that Naomi had lost, and he gave it as an inheritance to Naomi's son. And so the word redeemer is a rich, rich concept that talks about everything that Jesus has done. Uh, he has purchased us out of slavery. He has purchased us an inheritance. He has married the church. He protects us from our enemies. He's an avenger of blood, and he cares for us on the very, very issues that Job was facing in this, in this book, the very troubles he went through. Now, for Jesus to be Job's kinsman redeemer, he had to be a human. He had to in some way be related uh, to Job, otherwise he wouldn't be a kinsman uh, redeemer, okay? And so that word goel or gaal speaks to his humanity. He could not have saved us if he was not related to humans through Mary genetically. But the second thing that we notice in this section is that this kinsman redeemer is somehow God himself. Uh, Tyndale Commentary says, verses 25 through 27 are so tightly knit 
that there should be no doubt that the Redeemer is God. And that's why the New King James Bible uh, has the He as a capital, a capital He. Whoever the Messiah is, He is divine. Now, some liberal commentators, again, they have balked at this, and they said there is no way prior to the first century uh, New Testament that people could have known uh, that God was, of course, they don't believe this anyway themselves, but that, uh, that the Messiah was both God uh, and man. And uh, I would just tell you, don't worry about these guys. They're just unbelievers. Uh, the evidence is all against them. Uh, many times in their commentaries, you, you can see it. It's sometimes obvious. Don't confuse me with the facts is the, uh, the, the approach that they take. And, um, and, and it's very, very clear uh, in, in this passage that uh, he believed that Jesus was both human and divine. In fact, uh, all conservative commentators take this. They say it's inescapable. He has to be human. He has to be divine. Uh, I'll give you one more example. The New American Commentary says, For Job and for every believer before and after him, there is a divine Redeemer. We know his name is Jesus. And so this is really a remarkable text. Job knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that this coming Messiah would be a kinsman redeemer, which means he's a human, and he would be a divine redeemer, which means he is God. And it illustrates that even though the Bible was written over a huge span of time, some 1,500 years, by about 40 different authors in many different countries who could not collaborate with each other, it has a unified story of redemption. It is such a tightly knit together uh, book, and it demonstrates that it has to be a revelation of God. Job couldn't have come up with that concept on his own. You know, we too have an absolute certain knowledge just like Job did. If God says it, we believe it. If the Bible says it, we believe it. Uh, We can even affirm something as incredible as the fact that Jesus was both God and man. But the third thing that Job knew beyond any shadow of a doubt was that God was my Redeemer. This shows that he knew the pre-incarnate Son of God is his own personal Savior. Now, Jesus is not just a Redeemer of a corporate entity, you know, where we as individuals are ignored. We're kind of lost like little cogs in a machinery. No, he redeemed me individually. He redeemed you individually. And when you think about this concept of kinsman redeemer, it just blows your mind. Study the book of Ruth sometime, which is one of my favorite books. But you look at Boaz's redemption of Naomi and Ruth, it shows such sacrificial love on his behalf, on her behalf, on their behalf. But When God saves you and he sends his Holy Spirit into your heart, he unites you to Jesus. He enables you not only to say to Jesus, you are mine, but to be able to say to God, Abba, Father. He enables us to enter into that kind of a relationship. So here's the question I have for you. Can you say the same testimony that Job said that Jesus is my kinsman redeemer? You said faith in Jesus Christ is not just a historical faith. Yeah, I believe he can save people, and you have to be saved through Christ. The question is, have you put your faith in the Lord as your Savior? He's a personal Savior. 
And this was not just a future redeemer who did not yet exist. If Jesus was only a human, then his existence would have started a couple of thousand years after Job. But no, Job says, I know that my redeemer lives right now in the present tense. He was alive when Job was around. This coming Messiah is a living being that Job had intimate communion with in chapters 1 and 2. In Job 12, verse 9, he knows him by name, Yahweh. And in chapter 29, he remembers the sweet fellowship that he had with his Redeemer God. Let me read Job 29, verses 2 through 5. Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. I love that phrase in verse 4, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent. Now, two versions translate that, when God's intimate friendship blessed my tent, Another says, when God was my home's familiar uh, guest. So this is not a theoretical redeemer. It's very true that Job didn't have a clue what was going on around him. He could not understand how God could allow such suffering and pain into his life. And so he was tempted to complain, but he was never tempted to doubt that God exist, existed. He was never tempted to doubt that he was his redeemer, and he was never tempted to doubt that God was his friend. He trusted the word of a God who cannot lie. Can we do any less? And then comes a remarkable phrase that he could have only known from divine revelation. He says, and he shall stand at last upon the earth. Now, to stand is a possible translation, uh, but for centuries, commentators have translated it literally as shall rise up from or shall rise up above the earth. Either way you translate it, it implies, that preposition implies, prior to his rising up, he was inside the earth. And so they say it's a clear reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ at long last. In the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, John Sawyer points out that the word in this verse, yakum, uh, is, is one of the Hebrew words to refer to the resurrection from the dead. And so Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary say this, Above that very dust wherewith was mingled man's decaying body shall man's vindicator arise. Arise above the dust strikingly expresses that fact that Jesus Christ arose first himself above the dust and then is to raise his people above it, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23. Now, the rest of the passage talks about Job believing in his own uh, personal resurrection from, from the grave, but this verse shows, however dimly he understood it, he believed without any shadow of a doubt that his divine human kinsman redeemer would be resurrected. Now, what does that imply? It implies that this divine human kinsman redeemer would die now it doesn't say it in the text but if he's going to be resurrected in the future then he it dies as well and of course his death is needed for our redemption but the resurrection of christ has always been believed by god's people 
And that is what is implied by the next phrase, at last. There were people looking forward to the resurrection of the coming Messiah long, long, long before the time of Job. This resurrection victory was something that was anticipated from the time of Adam in Genesis 3.15. Now that verse does indicate uh, primarily that Jesus is going to suffer on behalf of his people. He's going to suffer from Satan, in fact. Satan's going to bruise his heel. But the very fact that he triumphs implies he triumphs over death. And so it's hinted at even there. But in any case, saints of old knew that at long last, the coming Messiah would finally defeat death and provide the way to resurrection life for his people. Now here's the point. If Job could believe that 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before Christ even came, before the events transpired, then we have no excuse for doubting that we have a divine human kinsman redeemer who loves us and can provide for our every need. We have no excuse for doubting his death and resurrection provides all things that pertain to life and godliness. If God's word says it, that settles it. We have far more information probably than Job had. Uh, Maybe not. We don't know exactly what information he had. But we can be confident in our kinsman redeemer. If he is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Amen? Now that's what verses 26 through 27 go on to say. Job didn't just have confidence in a Savior. That would be a historical knowledge. He had a confidence that the Savior would save him. He had a confidence in his own salvation. And it was a confidence that, first of all, transcended his sufferings. Verse 26 says, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know. Now, why does he mention his skin? Well, it was uppermost in his mind because it was hurting like crazy. He was covered with boils from head to toe. They were oozing. They were pulsating. They were hot. They just felt miserable. You know, it's one thing to believe in Jesus when everything's going well. It's another thing to believe in Jesus when things are falling, uh, uh, falling apart, you know, around us. When God puts a saving faith into his people, that faith sustains them through the darkest of times. In fact, in the very next uh, chapter, actually, was um, an earlier chapter, chapter 13, verse 15, it says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even if God brings worse into my life, I am not going to relinquish my faith in my uh, living living, uh, Redeemer. And so this faith in his Redeemer enabled Job to believe that God was for him even when it sure looked like everything was against him. Job had lost his money, his house, his children, his health, his reputation, and his friends. I want you to take a look at the same chapter, chapter 19, verses 13 through uh, 20. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Apparently, there were 
Uh, later it talks about his, uh, having adopted some children, or it may have been children from another wife, uh, but these are obviously not the children that died earlier. He says, I'm repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Romans 8.28 was not yet written, but if it had been written, some people might have thought that that's insulting to even say that. Yeah, when you look at Job's life. And yet, despite these confusing circumstances that Job did not understand, Job knew he had a full assurance that God was still his kinsman redeemer who cared for him and who would eventually vindicate him. And the future resurrection victory of this kinsman redeemer would guarantee his own bodily resurrection. Verses 26 through 27. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Now, there are two key phrases that point to his own resurrection. The first is, in my flesh I shall see God. Okay, full preterists are not able to deal with that because they deny we will have flesh and bones. But he says, in my flesh I shall see God. My eyes shall behold and not another. He was confident in his own resurrection. It was just not a, a resurrection of other people. And it was not simply his spirit going to heaven. This is talking about his whole being, his body and his spirit that would be standing face to face with Almighty God. This is a remarkable testimony for 4,000 years ago. And his confidence affirms that he won't be annihilated when he sees God. He will be forever with God. As long as there has been time, uh, God's people have experienced what they called the beatific vision. Uh, I have experienced this more than, more than a couple of times, uh, not very many, but I have experienced this where God's presence is so real, so powerful, that you are almost undone in the joy of experiencing His presence with you. And Job talked uh, in chapter 29 of having experienced uh, several of those occasions of that beatific vision. Okay, think of that concept that the church has held to down through the centuries. That pales into insignificance when you consider what is in store for us when we're not just in heaven, where we are at the second coming with glorified bodies, all vestiges of sin completely removed, all memories of sin removed from us. It's a wonderful picture of full redemption that will usher us into the joys and the happiness of heaven. David expresses his own resurrection in similar language. He says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Well, scriptures like these that make me yearn for the time, not just when we get to heaven, but yearn for that time when I will have not just a resurrected body, but a glorified body and spirit with every memory of the painful things of earth done away with. And we, I think when we think about these things, we ought to be able to say, hallelujah, glory be to God. I mean, this is something that ought to thrill our soul thinking of our future resurrection. And I believe that's why Job ends these words with the words, 
how my heart yearns within me. Those words show to me that Job's confidence was not simply an intellectual confidence. It was a confidence so deeply impressed upon his spirit that it made him yearn for that day when he would have his resurrection body and be forever done with the, the miseries and the sins of this earth. He says, how my heart yearns within me. And I hope just having briefly gone over these verses, uh, these scriptures have made your own heart and soul uh, yearn uh, for that, uh, that uh, kinsman redeemer uh, uh, as well. Paul said that this yearning had never ceased in his life. His aim in life, even on the most miserable days that he was experiencing, his aim in life was to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And the reason I can say I know that he had this even in his most miserable days is because he says he wanted to know Jesus even in his sufferings. Here's how he words it. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He didn't even want to experience death apart from fellowship with the Lord. And so Paul could say in the midst of his sufferings, I know that my Redeemer lives. And Job could say in the midst of his sufferings, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I want you to affirm out loud with a united voice the same testimony of faith that Job gave and say together with me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Again, I know that my Redeemer lives. So what do you say when Satan tries to get you down? You say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And what do you do when you look around you and it looks like everything's working together for my bad? Together, I know that my Redeemer lives. And what do you do When you start doubting your salvation, you say to yourself, I know that my Redeemer lives. Amen. Let's never forget this concept. We have a kinsman Redeemer who is so closely connected to us that he cares about every issue, every uh, burden, uh, every physical malady that you are facing. And he is a divine kinsman Redeemer who is so powerful, he is able to meet all of your needs according to his riches in glory. And this kinsman redeemer was raised from the dead. He conquered Satan. In fact, he triumphed over the very demons that were bringing these afflictions into Job's life. And if this kinsman redeemer is for you, who can be against you? Amen? Let's worship him. Father God... Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we love you and we worship you and we thank you for your great redemption. Father, we know that you planned it from eternity past and we worship you and adore you. Lord Jesus, we know that you came from heaven to fulfill your Father's plan and we are so grateful that no one can pluck us out of your Father's hands. Thank you for being our kinsman redeemer. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you always fully apply the Father's plan and the Son's redemption, and we worship you for having applied that redemption in our lives. Please empower us to live above our circumstances in the resurrection power of Jesus. Help us to always have hearts like Job displayed in chapters 1 and 2. And with Paul, we say that we want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, not just this day, but every day of the rest of our lives. 
Fulfill your plan in us, and we on our part commit ourselves to being your grateful servants for all of eternity. May all glory, honor, blessing, and praise go to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.